Blog Talk Radio. Throughout history, man has seen large, hairy bipeds stalking the forests and canyons of the world. What is it that has captured the fear and excitement of so many people? Is it the boogeyman? Or more likely, an undiscovered species habitating our most remote wilderness? Join us now for our quest into the mystery of the Sasquatch, also known as Bigfoot. Welcome to Squatch Detective Radio. Everybody and welcome to Friday, the February the or excuse me, Sunday, February the thirteenth. I'm glad it's not Friday, of 2011 uh, edition of Squatch Detective Radio. I'll be your host, Chris Bennett, and I'm sitting in for Steve Coles, who is definitely out of the country now, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But tonight, I'm excited to have uh, a special guest co-host. He's the director of Sasquatch Watch of Virginia and the host of Sasquatch Watch Radio, Mr. Billy Willard. Hey, Billy, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing good, Chris. Uh, glad, to, uh, glad to see everyone here. I see some uh, some folks that I remember seeing back back in the days when I was doing a radio show, but it's great to be here. And uh, oh, yeah. I suppose you're going to tell us what Steve's up to. Yeah, I said I would. Uh, <laughs> I've now got the, the, the clearance to, to to spill the beans, as it were. And uh, well, you know, some folks are probably wondering, where is Steve Coles at? Well, i tell you, about a month ago, Steve was approached by the National Geographic Channel, and they asked him to fly to Scotland to work on and star in an upcoming documentary about Loch Ness. Now, I assume it's going to be about the Loch Ness Monster as a topic, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, according to the film schedule, Steve uh, he won't be with us for tonight's show and probably next Sunday's show as well. Uh, he may 
I don't know. I spoke with him uh, the other day. He, he said he might be able to call in for the show next week, but we're still unsure about that for right now. Uh, if he could, that would be cool. Uh, <laughs> we could have a show from live from Loch Ness. <laughs> or uh, I'll tell you what would be better if we get get Steve a boat and let him row out there to the middle somewhere and uh, do live uh, live from the middle of Loch Ness in a boat. That would be good. Yeah. But hopefully he won't drop the hopefully he won't drop the phone in the drink. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that that would be cool. But we've had uh, I'll go. We've got a great guest tonight, folks. Uh, you're gonna love this guy. Uh, he's got a resume a mile long, and I'll get to him in just a minute. But uh, first, I'd like to go over some uh, some news that uh, Bigfoot's been in the news this week, and yes, uh, I'm I reckon he's been making tracks around North Carolina. And I'm going to go over this. This is a Fox News article that was reported Monday. I'm just going to run over this real quick. And it says, uh, from Troy, North Carolina, about an hour east of Charlotte, Troy, North Carolina has a population of about 3,000. Uh, residents say everyone knows their neighbor. That was until Super Bowl Sunday when somebody spotted a hairy beast. So evidently, Bigfoot must have been trying to watch the Super Bowl on somebody's TV. But anyway, uh, it goes on to say, you know, Sasquatch, Bigfoot in Florida, they call it the skunk ape. In the Appalachians and parts of Tennessee and Kentucky, it's known as the woolly booger, says John Pate. Yeah, I've heard it called that. Uh, whatever you call it, residents say they have proof it exists with pictures of 17-inch footprints. My goodness, that must have been a monster. That must have been uh, a big one. Now, they got a quote here from Leonard Braley. Braley, I hope I'm not massacring his name here. But he says, uh, when I came out, the stretch between the prints is 10 to 12 feet. You know that's a pretty big stretch. Uh, strides that are too big to be human, says BFRO. Oh, I would imagine so. Uh, and he goes on to say, uh, every state except Hawaii has had some type of Sasquatch Bigfoot sighting said John Pate, who's an investigator with the BFRO. And John's certain there's between three and 6,000 of these Bigfoot creatures that exist in North America. Uh, he says they're very, very, very intelligent. They have great eyesight, have great hearing, and they know how to survive, says Pate. Uh, he says they often communicate by knocking on wood. Well, now that's, that's, that's pretty good. And they went on from that sighting, and I think uh, it's, this may have a lot to do with there's a, also a documentary being filmed now. Uh, who is it? Is it Animal Planet, Billy? Uh, yeah, I, my understanding is there's a couple different things uh, right now that's going on, uh, yeah. as well as some things that are actually in production that haven't started yet. So, yeah. Uh, but I think one of them is I think one of them is Animal Planet. Yes, yeah, it is Animal Planet. And uh, they're basically following around. I believe it's, the fellow's name is Mike Green with the BFRO. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, most everybody probably remembers uh, Mike Green. Uh, he's a Bigfoot researcher. They got that uh, thermal uh, video footage uh, in 2009, I believe it was. And uh, apparently, he is working with uh, the Animal Planet, and they're going to shoot six episodes of some sort of uh, either cryptozoologist. Or or Bigfoot show something anyway, but uh, it said they 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 uh, had a meeting on Tuesday night of 150 people 
showed up at a planning meeting Tuesday night where Pate and others organized a grid search. And it says that search will happen on Saturday. Well, I looked on the, in the news today, and here's, here's the result from their big grid search Saturday. It says more than 300 people joined Green and about 10 staff members of the Animal Planet cable TV channel at the El Dorado outpost in North Carolina near Troy and began a search for signs of the mysterious, perhaps mythical, creature on Saturday. Green was glad to see the crowd. On Saturday, Bigfoot enthusiasts began to arrive about midday. Most came by car or truck, but there were horses and four-wheelers too. Even a helicopter, arranged by the Animal Planet crew, flew over the activities. Matt Moneymaker, head of the BFRO, organized a grid search that started in a large hayfield and moved into the woods. Television cameras and microphones surrounded the searchers as they looked for elusive clues. <laughs> Moneymaker instructed searchers to spread out and stay at arm's length from each other as they formed a long line headed into the woods. He used a bullhorn to, to instruct everyone to look for hair on trees or barbed wire, nests or sick structures, trails cleared of twigs and limbs, and tall boy trails. Tall boy trails have been cleared of tree limbs and branches up to eight feet high. Now it says, I can imagine this, This is, I, I can picture this in my head and it's looking kind of comical with uh, Matt Moneymaker on the bullhorn explaining everybody, to, okay, look down for hair samples on the ground. But it says hair samples were found. It says the Animal Planet crew saved them for analysis. Now I'll tell you what, that, that could be great. Or then again, it could be just a little hype to promote their upcoming series. Mm -hmm. But uh, that would be interesting if this if actually yeah. produced something. But uh, I think uh, I don't really know if that's really the right way to go about uh, <laughs> to go about looking for these things as an army in the woods. Uh, what do you think, Billy? Well, I can tell you this much. The moment uh the moment that I heard about the uh the big uh loud horn out there announcing what everybody yeah. was getting ready to do is about the same yeah. time that he probably skipped over about one or two counties. So <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah. Probably say it probably did sound like a military coming through the woods there and uh, I'd say they were long gone. So watch the site the sighting uh, reports probably go up in the surrounding counties. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd say they will. Everybody around them is going to have all kinds of them because they've they run them out everywhere. But, yep. <laughs> but anyway, that's the, that's the Bigfoot in the news. Now, we'll wait and see. Hopefully, something will come up with these hair samples in the future. But uh, anyway, let me uh, let me get to introducing our guest. Tonight, uh, we have uh, Mr. Mister Dan Nadrello. And uh, Dan, let me oh, hang on just a second. Dan is a herpetologist and a nature photographer from Wisconsin. He also spent four years with the BFRO as a researcher and is a former curator. Dan's resume is interesting since he has worked in numerous states for different organizations such as the National Wildlife Federation, Department of the Army, Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, and Bureau of Endangered Species. Uh, Dan's been involved with wildlife since a child and as a photographer has visited over 40 states Australia, Tasmania, Hispaniola, and Costa Rica. His wildlife images have been published in over 70 different books and magazines, and currently he is preparing to do galleries in major cities. 
His interest in Bigfoot field work took off while he was in the BFRO. The past two years, he's back in investigating local and distant reports around the country. Dan helped coordinate the Cumberland Monster episode for the BFRO and helped him document the, document, excuse me, the Bigfoot Symposium in California in 2003. Dan has been interviewed on several radio programs and has spoken on Sasquatch publicly. He spends his free time interacting with people reviewing signs of potential Bigfoot activity. Whew, what a resume. <laughs> and with that, I'll say, welcome, Dan Nadrello. How are you, Dan? Are you with us? <laughs> I am, I think. Am I? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. Wow, man, that is, that is a that is a very good resume you've got there, bud. Matter of fact, well, I'm out you. of breath just reading it off. <laughs> well, I, 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 what can I say? I just did whatever I could when I could, and uh, pretty yeah. intense yeah. young man there starting out. I'll tell you. Yeah. Well, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, uh, what are you, what are you doing now, or, or uh, what? Are, what are sure. you sure? Yeah. You bet. Basically, um, I, I work seasonally, uh, doing yeah. different things. And uh, from about April through November, I'm quite busy with wildlife presentations. And right. this includes a series of different subjects. Uh, because I'm a herpetologist, that's pretty popular. So bringing live animals to classrooms and talking about nature and wildlife is uh, pretty high on the list. Also, oh, yeah. I've got some experience with rainforests, so people like that program. And right. then I also do wildlife and then wildlife photography. Right. And uh, when I'm not doing things of that nature, uh, in the off-season when there's, uh, you know, budgets seem to be pretty tight sometimes, and uh, the speaking um, presentation series is usually not anywhere near as active during the wintertime. So I supplement mm -hmm. my time with substitute teaching, and then I'm always looking to coordinate with editors moving photographs to different books and magazines. Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. So that, and then when I've got the time, I'm on the phone talking to people like you. <laughs> yeah. And we appreciate having you, too. <laughs> but uh, well, any, th how, this how, interest, how, oh, go ahead. I, I didn't mean to be interrupted there. No, 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 go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I, like so many people, got excited and interested in uh, the Patty film back in 67. Yes. And yeah. I was in fifth, fifth grade at the time. And mm -hmm. so I guess that dates me. But anyway, uh, uh, mm -hmm. I just started reading anything and everything I possibly could on it. And right. uh, in college, um, anthropology would have been another idea to go into, but I like wild creatures, so I pretty much stuck to the wildlife biology trail. And uh, But I always had it on my mind. But it's interesting because in all my travels, I never really ran into anything that I could consider that. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, uh, I know you, you've, you've had some background with the BFRO and done some investigations yep. with them. Uh, yep. Is there one in particular that really sticks out in your mind that was really uh, – I know, of course, they're all, they're all going to be interesting, but is there one that was, that was the most interesting that you can think of? On one hand, I, I could say yes, and on the other, I'd say that's probably a lie because there's so many other that would rival that. <laughs> yeah. uh, w w when I started, I was like 90% sure. Let, let me give you a little bit of an intro on how I got in there. Um, mm -hmm. uh, my mother passed away, 
and my sister pretty much challenged me. This was in 2000, and she said, are you going to finally get online and get computer savvy? And I said, I guess I better. And she said, well, while you're at it, are you going to chase the big guy? And I kind of made a bet with her and said, I'll see what I can do. And once I got online, I started looking at reports, and I was already familiar with the BFRO and some of the other organizations due to the sound uh, vocalizations that they had that they claimed were from the target species. So right. I, uh, because of that, I started inquiring. And uh, they, I, I hooked up with one researcher, and he, he had checked in with the organization, and they said, well, we like your background. We'd like to maybe have you take a peek at some of the reports and see what you think. And one thing led to another. The next thing I knew, I was back there looking at reports and interviewing as many people as I could. Now, to get back right. to your question on the most mm-hmm. interesting uh, the one that kind of took me over the edge was I met a gal from UP, Michigan, and I interviewed her probably four times over a period of the first year, and then I continued that interrogation probably a couple, two, three times a year by email and by phone. She became a pretty good friend, and uh, she had an experience in UP, Michigan. And I don't, unfortunately, I don't have the number of the report here for you, but it's a UP, Michigan report. Between, it would have been right around 2001, 2002, 2003, probably about 2001 or two. And uh, basically, she had driven from the Twin Cities area, and she was heading over to go across the lock into in the southern portion of Michigan uh, to get out of the UP. And, and she couldn't drive it all at once, so what she did was she pulled over, and uh, I forget the county. But by golly, if it wasn't about midnight, and she was sleeping and was woken by a horrific odor. Her uh-huh. one-year-old son was accompanying her, and she just, it was awful. So basically, she ch- turned the lights on and checked him out, and it wasn't him. And he had this intense stare going through the window, and she looked, and by golly, if there wasn't this giant face covered with hair. The hair wasn't covered with face, but this thing had Angora hair hanging off it, like on a goat. And it it was standing in front of the vehicle, and I think on the report I've got the vehicle listed there as to what kind it was. And we we were taking measurements and trying to gauge how tall this fellow was, etc. But anyway, long story short, he was bent over looking down at the child, and the child was looking at him. And she just freaked and thought, that's it, I'm going to die. And she just <laughs> fell back in her seat. And, of course, the window was literally wide open, so we could have reached in and gotten the child. And as we know, it could have broken the window and took it. Uh, none of that happened. It was nice and gentle and just stood looking. She uh, um, finally realized, my gosh, I'm in a car. So she fired it up and turned the lights on, and, and it stood back, and she drove out and got home safely. So right. that was one of my first reports that really stood out. Wow, that was a good one. <laughs> and you know, there's there's a lot of reports that involve these uh, these creatures watching children, or watching children at play too. But uh, I've never I've never heard of anyone uh, being harmed or anything. Uh, matter of fact, nope. I think I I read one report. Uh, oh gosh, this has been a couple of years ago. Uh, one child had been separated, I think, from its family. Now, supposedly, a creature had found the child and brought it out of the woods and shooed it towards its family. So I, I don't know, but uh, that was, was that an Ohio was that an Ohio report? Like you know, that? I don't, I I do not remember, but I remember. Okay. I think I read it on the BFRO database. I believe I did. Okay. 
Well, the reason I say that is because I, I did an interview with a fellow from Ohio, uh, and he had a situation where it was a, supposedly a big female that came and got him and took him back to the little campsite and uh, set him down there. And oh, wow. he was, I think, five, five at the time. You know what? That might be the that, <laughs> that might be the same story. But uh, well, there you yeah. go. Yeah, there you I go. He had uh, he was an interesting fellow to talk to. And on one hand, I'm wondering to myself, could this really happen? Did it really happen? And on the other, I've read similar things as well. So I checked in with the other curators, and they all said, "Go ahead, publish it." So we did. Right. Right, and that's. Uh... That's an interesting account. I mean, uh, especially, of course, it makes me kind of nervous. I, I, I don't really, you don't really know what they're thinking, but if you look at the past reports, they're they're typically not not a violent species. So, uh, I mean, I can understand the person being fearful if you see one because you know it's really you're looking at a giant. But, oh uh, yeah, yeah. I haven't had that. But, I haven't had that diurnal observation yet. I, yeah. As I told Abe back in the Minnesota BRT radio program, um, I had one evening uh, observation of NyQlo, and we can talk about that down the road here, but uh, oh, cool. never been able to see it, never been able to see them during the day. And I right. feel like I've been very close to them a number of times now, and I've certainly yeah. gotten some vocalizations, and I can go on about that uh, as you like. Uh, oh, cool. But it's... Uh, it's just amazing because once I got into this in 2000, I that was it. I I couldn't leave. I I was with the organization for four years, and it was time for me to get out simply because I I was at the point where I was eating and sleeping this, and it was starting to right. affect my uh, decision making in other walks of life. <laughs> you yeah. might say. Yeah, yeah. We can all get a little bit too involved in it at times. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, also, something I'd like to mention was uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. the, the general, um, you know, passive nature of these creatures. It, it kind of was interesting, wasn't it, when we'd heard, I think, so many years back, maybe you heard about when a child fell into a gorilla pit or something? Oh, yeah. And yeah. it was actually hurt, The young, I think it was a young guy, and I think this little boy was hurt. It might have been a little girl, I don't know. Anyway, the, the female gorilla came over and picked it up. And took right. it and kept the other gorillas away, and actually took it over by the door so the keepers could could get this little person. Yeah, yeah, and I remember that. I thought a pretty good example. Yeah, that was that was uh, that that was on video. That came out on the video. Uh, I guess it was a couple of years back now. Yeah, and there was a little blonde-headed child. I don't know if it was uh, a boy or girl, but yeah, that child was knocked out, and this this yep. uh, this gorilla come over and picked the child up and cradled it and kept the other ones away from it. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you, that uh, that says a lot to uh, to the nature of the, the higher primates, too, you know. I uh, agree. But, uh, Billy, uh, do you have anything you want to jump in, any questions or anything? Yeah, I, you know, I, hey, you know, Dan, you uh, emailed me back, I guess it's been about a month ago. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you uh, notified me on Facebook and everything, and I never did get a chance to call and talk to you. I guess I guess one of my big questions now that you're back into the uh, back into the Bigfoot realm here, what uh, what all have you seen that's changed since the time that you were around here? I mean, have you seen some pretty major changes? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. 
Number one is I'm just really enjoying the online Bigfoot community. I have made so many more new friends. It's been unbelievable. And thank you, sir, for being one of them. Uh, Also, um, I think uh, if I was going to make a real quick example, I I think uh, people are talking freer about the subject matter, whereas in the past, when I, when I got out in 2004, it just seemed like there was so much hush-hush, and people weren't really sharing too much at the time. And now it just seems like there's a lot more of that, and I see all kinds of organizations have sprouted up. What was new for me were these radio, blog talk radio programs. That, you know, I haven't even hardly started to look through all the archives, so I'm just overwhelmed. I could work this stuff 36 hours a day. It's just crazy. Um, but uh, those would probably be the major things. The communication is just yeah. incredible. Yeah, and, it's uh, uh, it, it, you're you're very right, Dan. I mean, it's uh, especially with the invent of Facebook. Um, I think you probably run into quite a few people there on Facebook. I mean, you can pretty much just type in Bigfoot and get a get a slew of names in there to uh, to add to. But that, you know, I agree with you. I think that. Uh, uh, at least from the people I've talked to that's been in this for a while, has, has said that you know a lot of people seem to be a little bit freer at talking about some things that may have been in the past considered a little bit, you know, on the fringe, I guess you could say. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's you can definitely have some interesting uh, discussions. Oh, it's just been incredible. And and to let you know where I was when I was in the organization, I, I admittedly, I, I spent, I, I wasn't a 100% believer at all. I hadn't had the experience as others had. So when I first got in there, I spent as much time studying the folks that were in there as as, as the subject matter, simply because, one, I wanted to get to know them and, and you know, um, off, have something worth their time to offer back, but also to what synopsis or what psychosis is there that all these people have these claimed observations, you know? What is it they're doing right that I'm not because I wanted one so badly? So, But over time, then it became, you know, after I started having some vocal experiences and started interacting with so many people, uh, it became obvious to me we're dealing with something with repetitive behavior that, that varies phenotypically, you know, blondes, brunettes, and redheads, et cetera, but also uh, just... It's amazing how I could talk to somebody from North Carolina and then talk to somebody from Texas, and it was just like we were talking about the same creature doing exactly the same things. Yep. Yep, that's very interesting. And uh, something you brought up earlier, Dan, was talking about uh, eye shine. (laughs) That's one of my Mm -hmm. favorite topics on these things because uh, I've got my own little little thing going on about that. Sure. And I I wanted to ask you, Okay, of uh, the collected info, or your, if you've witnessed it, uh, well, has there ever been any reports of uh, any specific color eye shine? Uh, if, 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 if you've got uh, the color, what colors are they, and was there one that was predominantly seen more than, than the other colors? Well, um, in my experience, it was, uh, it was a yellowish, not quite a green. Um, from one of the from one of the long term um, locations that I was working with, um, we on that property. This was down in Tennessee. It was tended to be, tended to be a greenish coloration constantly. Um, I where I'm experienced right now, and I've got a private location that I'm working um, in the south, and we're getting um, 
along the road will get a red eye. Now, is that reflective off the lights? I don't know. Why the difference between red and green? I don't know. Other other colors? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> and as far as uh, I just know that the general, you know, nocturnal animals tend to have a greenish color. And I do know that my specialty with reptiles and amphibians, I mean, I, I feel more comfortable with pit vipers and alligators than I do probably most people, which sounds pretty silly, but that's just me. <laughs> anyway, I know that you've got more rods and less cones, and that tapetum counts yeah. yeah. for that um, reflection. And apparently people don't have it, and apparently these guys do. So... <laughs> Well, yeah, we we got into a discussion about that over on the uh, the new and improved Bigfoot forums, and uh, we were talking about the the eye shine and stuff, and how that uh, these things do what they do, and of course I don't think anybody knows, but uh, the, the subject come up about uh, one guy had thought that uh, uh, the humans could have an eye shine or would have an eye shine if their pupils were fully dilated. Like uh, mm-hmm. by by a chemical means, like you know, a visit to the, uh, the your optometrist. So I that really in, interested me. So what I did, I had to go to Glasgow anyway. Uh, Glasgow, Kentucky is the largest town here, mm-hmm. close close by to my Kentucky hillbilly uh, <laughs> a residence. But uh, I stopped by a, a place over there called uh, McPeak Vision Center, and I spoke uh, with one of the uh, optometrists there. I suppose uh, a, a nice lady, and uh, mm-hmm. she told me that uh, nope, that humans don't have eye shine, and not even when uh, fully dilated by using chemical means. So that kind of answered that question for me. There, I think I their eyes is, is definitely they're they're certainly different from ours, but uh, oh, nobody really knows exactly. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too because. You talk. Well, you know how it is too, you guys. When you, when you talk to somebody who is really well versed in a subject, you may right. find somebody somewhere else as well versed who doesn't agree. So, right. it, it, time will tell, I guess. Um, you right. know, the the bioluminescence is also brought brought up as a arguable point, and I found it interesting that uh, some of the folks that should know didn't completely disregarded it, and other people right. strongly. Either had experienced it or, or et cetera. Now, personally, I don't have the means and the intelligence and the knowledge and experience to get into that deeply. But at this point <laughs> in time, we've certainly underestimated the target species, haven't we? So who knows? Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think uh, personally. Now, I don't think that they can project light from their eyes. Uh, if they did, that would be kind of scary. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah. Well, it's it interesting seems, because I've I've read where people have stated that. So right, kind of interesting. Yeah, it would it would seem like if they could do that though, they would be totally blinded. It Again, like, talking to the wrong yeah. guy. Huh? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? But uh, it's just another yeah. one of the long list uh, 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 questions. Uh, that's one of them on the long list that we'll have answered maybe someday, hopefully, about how yeah. these creatures do what they do. But uh, I've noticed red uh, here in Kentucky. I've not been fortunate enough or well-financed enough to be doing any expeditions in the Pacific Northwest, but I've took a lot of sighting reports from other folks, and they said that Mm -hmm. they had spotted um, yellow and that they had spotted Mm -hmm. green. And Mm -hmm. one guy uh, just 
about I guess it's probably about three weeks ago or maybe a month ago now, uh, from right here in Kentucky, said he saw one, saw the creature, and it had a blue eye shining. And uh, that uh, that, that floored me there. <laughs> well, well I will floored. say. I will say that as a photographer, I, I think the angle seems to have a lot to do with some of the reflections. Sometimes you might notice you take a picture of a dog or a cat, and you may get two different colors in the eyes reflected back. Right. And right. I don't have, an, again, I'm not a anatomist there. You know, yeah. I, I don't yeah. specialize in anatomy. And they had, excuse me, the anatomy of the physiology. So, I will say too, though, I I, I wonder if uh, diet hasn't got a little bit of something to do with this too, and uh, you know, because they're always talking about people, and as we age, they want to make sure we're eating plenty of vitamin A and and, and proper nutrition yeah. to improve our eyesight. So, right. who knows? And uh, I just like to throw out there for our, our listeners, if, uh, if anybody wants to call in. Uh, uh, join in the conversation, ask a question or comment, 347-996-5800. We are on the line with Dan Nadrello, researcher, photographer. And uh, that's the, the next thing I wanted to get into a little bit with you, Dan. Did, when you're doing your, uh, your wildlife uh, photography, mm-hmm. is there any kind of... Uh, do you got have any kind of system or any any kind of tricks you could like uh, any advice you could give anybody of how to get closer to what they're filming? <laughs> you bet, you bet. Uh, number one thing, obviously, is to know the most you can about it, whether it's a deer, whether it's a predator, whether it's uh, what we're talking about, and right. of course. You can see the success that's been going on with what we're talking about. Very, very, mm-hmm. few, very, very few images. One thing that'll help a lot, though, is image stabilization. And of course, you can go to the store and buy an image stabilized lens and an image stabilized camera. But what you really need to do, though, if you're working distance, you really need to get that camera set down somewhere, whether it's a rock, whether it's a log, anywhere, just to stabilize it. And that's easier right. said than done. I'll often just take the camera and cram it right into the side of a tree trunk, just trying to stick it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. that would, uh, that would work. Than, 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 that'd be better than trying to freehand it because I have some experience with trying to freehand a, a video and it turned out terribly. But uh, I did it, learn it my does. lesson. <laughs> it just does. And then when you start blowing things up, because with me now, I've got a 10 megapixel, 35 millimeter Canon. EOS, and I'm working next toward, I'd like to get a 50D, I've also got a 30D, which is an 8, and an 8 megapixel equals film, like 35 millimeter film. So when you get up into those 15s that they have now, my goodness, that's great, because that's almost like a telephoto lens, because you can crop that picture and still have an incredible shot, as long as it's sharp. That's the key thing. Well, do you you like... uh do you carry several lenses in the field with you, or do you, do you have one like catch-all lens that seems to be works best for you? Well, my catch-all lens right now, if I'm going light, is a 70 to 300, and and of course it's a 1.6 multiplier of what you see uh, of, of what it is. So basically, a 300 is like a 480, and if wow. you see at approximately 50 millimeters then 480 almost gets you 10 times closer. And so that would be like 
comparison, if you look at a football field at 100 yards, that's like almost zipping you up to the 10-yard line. In other words, right. as far as the distance, which is wonderful if you're trying to do little birdies or, or things like that. Um, also, something that works for me is uh, I like I don't have a lot of money for the big expensive lenses. My photo partner has a, a seven thousand dollars six hundred millimeter lens, oh, and wow. he's got to have that. Uh, he's got to have that on a pipe all the time, some sort of a, a tripod. Otherwise, the camera yeah. shake just kills the picture. But once yeah. that baby's lined up, can he ever do incredible things with it? We got pictures of uh, two. Um, Adolescent timber wolves crossing the Mississippi River heading for Iowa one day. Oh, wow. Wow. And they were like halfway out across the river at about, it was, it was probably pushing a mile. And uh, we've got some pretty wide river here. And uh, they came out, you could identify them. I mean, you could tell they were wolves and not coyote. So that's how good that lens right. was. Pretty impressive. So the, the, the biggest piece of advice you would give is to, uh, to the average, the amateur. A videographer would be uh, have a like a tripod or some sort of uh, some sort of way to stabilize what they're taking video of, right? That I I would say yes, simply because the camera shake kills the quality of the picture, and right. you often see the, so many videos that are just swinging. Yeah. And if, you know, if you could just stop that and and lock it up, and then focus at this spot for a while and then move it a little bit and over here. It could, because if it's all blurry, you, you know, it's not really going to hold up too much, but it can certainly give you right. clues because you can count individual blur spots. So. Right. Well, that's a, the thing I've noticed. Uh, when I'm out fooling with video in the in the field and trying to video various animals, uh, that when I, uh, I moved, uh, especially on a, uh, a really uh, high zoom level setting, uh, just the mm-hmm. least little bit of movement throws everything, oh, gosh, completely yep. way off, blurry blob, and then it'll be clear, and then you move a little bit, and boom, there you are, just a blob again. Mm-hmm. And, and something that might apply to some cameras, not necessarily mm-hmm. all of them, but there's obviously a wide range of cameras. Just incredible. Right. And I'm not as familiar with the video cameras as I'd like to be. That's kind of in my future. But um, sometimes if you don't fully extend, but you take a really sharp picture, sometimes that's worth it too. Maybe you do that first and then fully extend. So that way you get both. Because we've seen cameras where it just the, the focus was so poor that three-quarters of the video just was, why are we looking at it? So Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then the other well, thing too, I'd like to I'd like to mention, if you don't mind, real mm-hmm. quick, yeah. is uh, yeah. uh, one of the retired bio- biologists from from I believe Oregon, uh, James Hewitt, or Hukin, Hukins, I think it is. He uh, had a whole series of different evaluations that, and when he was tracking what he thought was field sign from the subject, and he. Uh, he came across a story and followed it up apparently of a young man who shot a Sasquatch from a blind, which, as we know, might not be the very brightest thing to do because of the retaliation <laughs> factor. Um, but this guy had found, a, had found a kill that they had seen big tracks with around, and so he just sat in that blind, and he actually got a chance to, if he'd had a camera, he could have clicked it, I think, before it would have picked up and took off. 
And oh. uh, so there's an example. Now, did that really actually happen? I certainly can't verify it, but I, I, with all the interactions we have with people and all the reports, I'm, I'm sure that some people are in position to do this. But uh, yeah. usually the surprise factor kind of, and things happen so fast. It seems like there's so many reports that are only five or ten seconds long. And then it's, uh-huh. like, gone, and you're, like, standing there, what, where, when, how, why, you know, all that. <laughs> After the fact, you're everybody's standing around saying, well, shoulda, woulda, coulda. <laughs> exactly. It's too late after the fact, yeah. But uh, you know there was a uh, there was a show on uh, a documentary on I think it was the History Channel called Bigfoot: The Definitive Guide, and uh, they had some different theories on uh, what they thought uh, the Bigfoot creatures are. I think one of them was uh, the gig- giganto or relative, and uh, the other one was uh, one theory was that it could be a prehistoric man. Uh, and there was another one I think was uh, Indian uh, possible Indian shaman in some sort of nature training. <laughs> what, okay. what 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 do you personally think uh, these creatures are? Well, that is a wonderful question. And you know, I'm first of all, I'm not convinced that from Alaska to Florida they're exactly the same thing. Uh yeah. very well maybe. Uh there's so many probably geographical different variations. And uh, it's, as far as what I think they are, primate, no doubt. Uh, right. The next point would be, are they, are they? you know, it used to be nice because we had one family of the general tropical great apes called pongids, and then we had our, our uh, hominids. Now, all of a sudden, I understand that the chimpanzee and the gorillas have been moved into the hominid group, so that kind of makes me wonder a little bit. But anyway... I have so many reports that came back. I saw a caveman. Right. I saw a caveman. And then, as we know, John Cartwright's uh, observations seemed very, very, very apey. Um, And then there's numerous other folks that have that. I I was going over some Texas reports recently, and they also seem to be very, very uh, apey. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some that aren't. Uh, Right. But the more, the, I guess the the more I learn, the more I wonder about what I know. So, yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I think that the show also brought up uh, possibly Heidelbergensis or whatever, um, right. one of the one of the genus Homo uh, prehistoric guys. And if right. that thing can actually reach significant size, that's interesting. Um, yeah. Is there a possibly a forerunner in the Gigantopithecus that might not be Gigantopithecus but related? Who knows right. what as far as the fossil record is? I'm certainly not one to jump to conclusions because I see people do that a lot, and I just don't think we have the, the basis for that. So I'll just leave it well, as an unknown, and and that's yeah. where I'm at. Well, you know, the the people that, that I talk with here in Kentucky, most of them report seeing the exact same thing every time I ask them. Uh, you know what did it look like? Every one of mm-hmm. them tells me it looked like an ape. And yep. uh, I, I, I've heard of, of other, you know, uh, you know, since I don't do research anywhere else other than Kentucky, uh, huh? I've heard and read other reports that people report them looking like a Neanderthal or, or definitely uh, a hairy man with uh, caveman-like features and no hair on the face. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's really, really interesting. Uh, I've gotten a lot like that, 
And then I think when I first started this, and when I started to actually attack the reports, I talked to a young man in Iowa, and he kind of gave me an almost AP-type description. And he was terrified, and he was upset, and he was angry with adults. He was 18, and he had his pack of guys with him, and they were all freaking out because of this thing standing out behind a tree peeking around at them. They were just really upset. You know, and I could tell by his tone of voice that this was re- this was a real deal. Um, I, I, uh, that was one of the first reports that I got where it was like getting kicked alongside the head saying, no, no, I saw this. I need help. I want you to help me with it. What's going on? And then another, then about two years later, from the same general area, I talked to a young man who was going to be an offensive lineman for, uh, um, I think, Iowa. And he was a pretty big fella. And he basically told me that I thought it was my cousin or my buddy's cousin. And I looked over, and I don't recall exactly how close he was to it, but he was squirrel hunting. And the reports in the Iowa bunch between 2000, 2001 and 2004, but with the BFRO. But anyway, he uh, he he just told me it was like a caveman, and I said, "Sort of look really apish." He goes, "It looked like a caveman, more so than ape." Now, down in uh, Texas, and I, I can give you the number of this one. This is report number. Where did it go? Right here. This is uh, report number forty-two oh six. 4206. This is a report that I did from a fellow who who had, well, he was a real estate guy. And that's all I'm going to say. Uh, one thing I did, I cross-sectioned him, though, a little bit, because one of the things that he did was he tutored football players. turned out that he had tutored one of the first-round draft choices for our Packers. And I knew that guy's uh, bio because he and I had some things in common. I just happened to notice that. Anyway, I asked him a few questions about that particular guy, boom, 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 he got them all just right. So that was one of the little things I did to cross-section that. Um, long story short, he he, uh, he had to take a whiz. <laughs> he pulled out his pre-dawn report, and he got out of the truck and went down the path along a river, or along a lake, actually, and it was the same, edge of the Sam Houston Forest down there. And by golly, if he isn't just about to step down a little knoll or a little hill in this path when this thing jumps up right alongside him, they're oh. face to face. And it grabs a branch, shakes it violently, lets out kind of a whoo, whoo, and then sidesteps him and goes right up the trail past his pickup truck, which I think was, and don't hold me to this, I think it was like a smaller Ford uh, pickup truck. And it had mm-hmm. parking lights on, so it, there was an ambience of light around it. A, car, a truck was coming and had to brake for it as it uh, crossed the road and went up the hill into some pines. And he described it, and it was very apy with the heavy tri- uh, trapezius muscles, and, and it looked like it would be real difficult for it to turn its head around, and, and a big hump on the back, and, and uh, um, you know, kind of a bent-over stance, and, and arms that drooped off the shoulders, that type of thing. So... Right. So that was very AP. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's something I guess this kind of leads me to wonder if maybe the juveniles might not be quite as AP as the big adult mature males, too. And then, of course, if you look at people, look at the incredible variation that we yield. What right. if they're under the same guys? So there would be all kinds of wide variants. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of what the reports suggest. Yeah. And... uh what what are your thoughts? I mean, uh, 
it doesn't it doesn't matter one way or the other. But what what are your thoughts on the Patterson creature? Do you think that that uh, that film looks looks pretty good, or do you think? Well, when I was in fifth when I was in fifth grade and I saw that come in the newspaper, I about flipped out of my skull because I had just <laughs> discovered the idea that there was an abominable snowman that very same year in fifth grade, and I'd right. gone to the encyclopedias to start reading about it. And then when that came out, I I just lost it. So I started doing a literature search. Uh, I was interested in two things at that time. Well, three things at that time in my life. But anyway, uh, two, I can give you two of them. And uh, one of them was <laughs> reptiles, and the other one was uh, the other one was the Sasquatch, and uh, actually cryptid animals, I guess. You know, yeah. I started out a dinosaur guy, so any unusual and rare animals were just awesome. And uh, so I just dove into that. And my feelings at the time were that. I think that's real, and the reason is is because I think there's adults that agree with it, and I bet they know more than the adults that I know, and so I wanted to know why. And so I spent every available moment just digging into natural history and zoology up and down from fifth grade on. Um, I felt very comfortable that that stinker was the real deal all the way through until the last, maybe the last couple years now. And mm-hmm. I still feel as though there's an excellent chance that is the real deal. I have been able to talk to Bob Gimlin on a couple of times, and right. I will say that the the one comment he made to me that I found very interesting, and what a wonderful laid-back guy to have absorbed all these crazy questions coming his way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything from, uh, well, I won't even get into it because it's such a wide <laughs> experience. Yeah. But I will say that he he looked at me one day when I was up in California in 2003, and he goes, we weren't worried about her. We were worried about the maker of the 18-inch tracks. Right. In other words, there was another individual, and they were concerned about what his reaction might be to them pushing her. So, right. And I, always, and I always remembered that because that just seemed really significant to me. Right. Patty was big, uh, and she was a female. She's going to have a uh, a big boyfriend around somewhere probably. <laughs> I... That was the feeling, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and her well, phenotype, her phenotype also matched what we'd anticipated that maybe a pregnant female might look like. And then you'll you'll read so many reports where they're more narrow waisted and have a line. You know, you keep refer, you keep hearing the term linebacker look to those right. uh, big burly males. So. Right. So yeah, I think she's real. He's kind of husky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I tell you. I'm, I'll I'll say this. Uh, I've always said that, you know, uh, of course, I wasn't there the day that they filmed it, so I don't know for 100% fact, but, you know, if it is a hoax, it's it's, it's the greatest one that's ever been done because he got it exactly right. <laughs> yep. He got it exactly yep. right. Well, from my understanding, from my understanding, and um, looking, you know, I haven't studied each and every loophole that people like to point out. But I did study John Green's books, and uh, I feel very comfortable with what he went with. And he certainly has, like all of us, has made plenty of mistakes along the way. But uh, if if the footprints coordinate with that particular individual, um, I don't know. It just seems to add up to me. And and regardless whether it is or not, that isn't even uh, that's only one small factor in this overall deal that we're dealing with now. So. Well, uh, Dan, you've done some field investigations, haven't you? I have. Uh, Has there ever been a time 
uh, when you were in the field that something frightened you. And it didn't have to be a creature or it could be uh, while you were out uh, doing one of your uh, wildlife shoots. Uh, have you ever had a time sure. that something frightened you? Could you yeah. tell us a little bit about it? I can, <laughs> I'm trying to think <laughs> of one that would be interesting for the listeners. Let's start with Australia. We were up in the Daintree Rainforest, and uh, we had some places to camp that were pretty reasonable, but we wanted to do some extended uh, photo trips in different directions, and so we would take long hikes. And in one case, I came through some forest, and all of a sudden I ran into some forest hogs and a cassowary, which is a big ostrich-like, colorful, blue-faced, I believe they call them ratites, but big, uh, you know, and, and these things can be really aggressive to people and literally disembowel you with this big knife-like oh. toes on their feet. And, oh. yeah, they're not as big as an ostrich, but they're still pretty big. And so that made me pretty nervous because I, I, fortunately it turned out to be a young male who was just gobbling down tropical fruit uh, seeds and nuts with the hawks. And so no problem. That was one. <laughs> Uh, I spent many years chasing rattlesnakes up and down river bluffs. That's one of my specialties for this state in Wisconsin here, actually. Wow. And uh, one of my jobs was to study rattlesnakes for the department to try to determine locations and and, uh, distribution and density. And we have one rare one here called the Massasauga Rattler. Well, anyway, I was doing a timber, timber rattlesnake survey, and I was on a particular hill. And I've done this for decades, but what... That was interesting on this particular day was I was working the den. I didn't notice the two big males coiled up right below me. So oh, I went no. over looking in this, looking in these dens and trying to see if I could count sand tracks or whatever it is. And all of a sudden I looked down and here's so many inches below my face. There's this big timber rattler looking up at me. That was nerve wracking. Uh, after that, it kind of comes down to cliff edges. I've only fallen once, and luckily I landed in soft. And that was like a 20-foot fall, kind of a bounce off the side of the face of a hill. And uh, oh, no. another one was, uh, I think I think it kind of comes down to guard dogs, German Shepherds and Dobermans, mostly German Shepherds. And I, I've been bitten a couple times fairly severely by a few animals. It's interesting. The worst one was a uh, gray squirrel. <laughs> from a zoo job that I had when I lived in Missouri, which I don't know if you made You were attacked by a gray squirrel. It was it was actually a Mexican gray squirrel that got loose, and I was asked to capture it. And it flew out of the net, and I was wearing shorts, and it grabbed me right at the knee, and I was a little concerned about ligaments and, and uh, yeah. tendons. Fortunately, it was okay. While in high school, I got nailed by a horse. That wasn't good. And it was the same knee. And then I also was bitten by a mountain lion, about 60 pounds, on top of my head. Um, oh, in a no. Cap situation. Yeah. And well, she was just using me as a to- to- chew toy. The only problem is <laughs> they cut through things really fast. So oh, yeah. It wasn't, oh, yeah. It wasn't a real good situation, but that one made me a little nervous after I realized how much uh, um, blood I was uh, parting with at the time. So, so overall, would you say like uh, being a wildlife photographer is uh, sort of uh, living on the dangerous side? For me, no, I don't think so because I'm probably a lot more conservative than those other guys. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the rattlesnakes thing sounds pretty scary, and I've done, I've picked up and handled all the venomous stuff in North America, and and okay. I've worked with 
all kinds of things that can take your life, but we do that every day when we drive a car or, you know, um, do the things we do, I guess. Um, right. I, that, there, there's a good example of why you need a telephoto lens. Yeah. <laughs> the farther yeah. away you are for some, you know, I, I had one incident with a bison one time where, mm-hmm. it wasn't, excuse me, it wasn't a bison, it was a moose. It was the little rack, though, it was Shiraz. It was in Wyoming. And uh, I had a guy behind me who was bored, and I didn't know he was there. And I was closing on this moose to get some nice portraits, which I did. But I, I, one time I, I clicked the camera, and all of a sudden this moose jumps up and whirls around and stares at me. And I'm like, oh, man, where's the tree? I'm in deep trouble. I froze. He looked real nervous. I didn't move. Finally, he looked like he took his eyes off me, and he started looking around another way. So I kind of backed off, and then I found a guy behind me that was shifting his weight back and forth, and that was the that was why the moose was irritated. So I just told the guy what I thought, and then I moved out to another area. So oh, no. that's probably the closest one. And we've had some elk that I was really concerned about once, but uh, that's about it. Well, Dan, we have run, I mean, almost up to the – to the pole here. We're, we're about out of time. It's uh, got like three or four minutes left of the show, and it sure has went fast. Holy uh, Billy, I'm I'm sorry if I didn't <laughs> give you the. Oh uh, no, the, I was, I was sitting here enjoying. No, I was sitting here enjoying myself just listening to uh, to Dan talk. I mean, he's got a lot of. You can tell he's been out in the field quite a bit. Yeah, and that that's one of the great things uh, I love about having a, a researcher that's actually been in the field. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to them, and it, it sure has been a pleasure talking with you tonight, Dan. And I thank you for uh, coming on our show. And, well, thank uh, you. I pre- it's, it's been a joy, and uh, really appreciate getting to say hi to Billy and uh, talking to you, Chris. Yeah, I, I appreciate the, the honors all mine, but but uh, I guess that's going to be it for uh, this week's episode of uh, Squatch Detective Radio. Uh, be sure to tune in with us next week, folks. Uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Uh, we're going to have uh, Bigfoot researcher Melissa Hovey on. And uh, like I said, I don't know if Steve will be able to call in or not, but we're going to try to work something out if, if possible. Uh, it would be nice to get him out in the middle of a, in, in the middle of a Loch Ness in a rowboat and do a show from there. <laughs> I'll definitely be listening for that one. That will be great. <laughs> but uh, for, uh, for Billy Willard, I'd like to thank everybody for listening and thank our guests for for being on with us, and uh, please come back and see us next week. Good night, everybody. Yep. Yeah, good night. There must be some kind of way out of here. Joker to the beat There's too much confusion I can't get no relief Businessman there Drink my wine Come and dig my earth